broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from 12 to 12.45, broadcasting live from the backyard of Roberta's Pizzeria inside of a cut-up old container can. Joined, uh, as usual, in the studio today with Nastasha, the Hammer Lopez. How you doing? Fine. Check this out, people. Call in all of your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. The first episode of Cooking Issues where I've memorized the telephone number. How do you like that? That's good. Nice. Uh, I was thinking about it on my uh, crazy bike ride over here. I managed, even though I'm a little late, you know, I managed to bike here from my house in 15 minutes flat, which is why when I show up, sometimes you hear me at the beginning of the show and I'm coughing up a lung. It's because I'm an out of shape 40 year old guy biking from Manhattan to Brooklyn in 15 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. No comment from the Nastasha. Today's show, episode 58, by the way. Yeah. Is brought to you again by the Modernist Pantry. Today's show is sponsored by Modernist Pantry, supplying innovative ingredients for the modern cook. Do uh, do you love to experiment with new cooking techniques and ingredients, but hate to overspend for pounds of supplies when only a few grams are needed per application? Modernist Pantry has the solution. They offer a wide range of modern ingredients and packages that make sense for the home cooker enthusiast, and most only cost around five bucks, saving you time, money, and storage space. Whether you're looking for hydrocolloids, pH buffers, or even meat glue, you'll find it at Modernist Pantry. And if you need something that they don't carry, just ask. Chris Anderson and his team will be happy to source it for you. And it's true. They actually, they sourced the pectinex like on one week's notice for us. It's true. Right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, where was I? Mm, you know, because I'm reading this, folks. I don't, this doesn't come out of the top of my head. Uh, Chris Anderson and his team will be happy to source it for you. With inexpensive shipping to any country in the world, hear that? Colombia and Brazil. With inexpensive shipping to any country in the world, Modernist Pantry is your one-stop shop for innovative cooking ingredients. Modernist Pantry carries gelatin sheets in both silver and gold strength. Many professional chefs prefer sheet or leaf gelatin over the powdered variety for its clarity, clean taste, and ease of use. Although I like powdered for when I'm, uh, when I'm doing things like uh, uh, clarification because it's easier to measure out in smaller quantities. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. powder, it's a powder. The leaf, you have to cut up the leaf and anything. Although, I, you know, when I'm using whole leaves for like standard operations, I usually use the leaf gelatin because I prefer it. But for ease of use in hydro recipes, I often use powdered. And Knox brand, by the way, gelatin is fairly good quality. It's like equivalent, I think, to uh, gold or even higher. Anyway, uh, whatever. Just, uh, if your recipe calls for gelatin, give Sheet Gelatin a try. Fans of cooking issues that place an order of $25 or more before next week's show will get a free package of 160 Bloom Sheet Gelatin. Simply use the promo code CI58. That's Cooking Issues 58 when placing your order online at modernistpantry.com. Visit, us, visit modernistpantry.com today for all of your modernist cooking needs. How's that? Good. Good? Okay. So, uh, remember, though. Call in your questions because we would appreciate calling questions. We enjoy them too. 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. All right. Now, uh, anything interesting happened this week, Nastasha? Did we do anything? I felt like we did a lot. Went to the farm. Oh, yeah. This weekend we went to uh, Cesare Casella, one of our uh, good friends, favorite uh, favorite Italian and any, any kind of chef. Very good host. Uh Invited us up to a farm that he has, uh, uh, what do we call it, like a partnership with? Mm-hmm. 
So the farm uh, specializes. It's part of this uh, the Center for Discovery and Discovery School, which is uh, this great place in Sullivan County that um, it's basically a residence school slash uh, place home really for. Uh, People who are either severely autistic or multiply disabled and, and basically need a, a constant amount of support. And one of the initiatives they have uh, from a, a therapeutic standpoint is a farm where they – Cesare grows his Chianina cattle there, which are, which are fantastic. But they also have sheep, goats, chickens, uh, pigs. Uh, they're starting a dairy and they grow a lot of their own vegetables. And so the idea being that uh, – and, and Cesare got involved as a place for his cows, but also he's uh, helping them – uh, ensure that the food that everyone there eats is of very, very high quality. The idea being that um, the better the quality of food you eat, the better your life is. We certainly agree with that, right, Nastasha? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, every year he has a fundraiser with a bunch of chefs, Mark Ladner from Del Posto, uh, you know, Kevin Garcia. Who else was there? Ma- our own Marco from Roberta's was there. Marco, Marco, Jesus Christ. Carlo. I call him that because someone there called him Marco, and it's not, oh, Jesus Christ. Carlo. Uh, <laughs> Nastasha's giving me the squinky eye. All right, all right, come on. Anyway, uh, who else? Who else was there? Uh, John Frazier. Oh, yeah, John Frazier was there. Uh, I feel like I'm missing a whole slew of people. I am. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Anyway, it was a great event. Uh, raised uh, a lot of money for uh, a good cause. I made a cocktail. It was a caraway mint julep, which I think we've mentioned on, this, uh, on the air before. The idea that spearmint and caraway, uh, they was they's brothers. The chemical that makes them, that makes them taste unique. The two chemicals are mirror images of each other. They're isomers. Anyway, uh, Carvone is the chemical. So we call the drink uh, Tony Carvone, and we do it in a bunch of different varieties. This was a julep Carvone. We've done uh, other kinds of Carvones. Uh, uh, we, we, I like them. You like them? Yeah. A lot of people are like, caraway, me, me. You know, listen, if, I, if you come to an event that I'm working, or anyone's working, if someone's making a cocktail, like, first of all, Nine times out of ten, the people who are running the event don't give water to the cocktail guy. So don't walk up to the cocktail guy and ask the cocktail guy for water because odds are they don't have it. Right, Nastasha? Yes. They don't have it. They just don't have it. Uh, you go to the, the wine station usually has it, right? Or there's usually a water station or something. But usually the cocktail guy, they barely gave that guy ice. They didn't even give him bar towels. He's wiping his hands off on his pants, right? Pretty much? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, another thing, don't just ask for a pour of the straight liquor unless you order the cocktail too. If you say, hey, uh, can I have a pour of the straight liquor? They really, they don't like you anymore. They don't, right? It's true. Yeah. So just a- get the cocktail. Look, it's a sunk cost, right? It's not like they're going to charge you extra for the cocktail at the event. Just get the dang cocktail. And if you don't like it, put it down somewhere and then say, this is what you say. I enjoyed the cocktail. Can I just have a shot of the straight liquor? And then they won't dislike you, Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so and it's like anything when you choose a cocktail like caraway that is a polarizing thing, which I should never do. I should only choose kind of slam dunk ingredients. The people who like caraway came back for like a bajillion of them, right? We had a bunch of many multiple takers on that. Uh, Steepy Semi seemed to enjoy the cocktail mm-hmm. actually. He was at the event. Um, but then you know a bunch of people just won't even try. It's a real heartache when you do polarizing ingredients. Anyway, uh, a good time was had by all, especially my kids who got to milk a cow. Um, Nastasha, did you go milk the cow? No. I was making the cocktail. You were not making the cocktail. You were picking mint. <laughs> making the cocktail. You were picking mint. See, I demand accuracy from everyone I work with, right? True? True? Accuracy? Anyway. Uh, this is interesting, and this has never before happened. We have uh, the identical question in from two different uh, listeners. One, Johnny Hunter, 
And uh, the other, and I have to scroll down because they're not in the same one. Uh, Sam Canson um, Benava. Benanav. 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 Okay. Uh, I don't know whether they know each other, um, but uh, I'll read them both. The, first, uh, the second one from uh, Sam is, how would one go about making a bagel cocktail? Obviously, the major challenge is transferring the base wheat bagel flavor into alcohol form, after which one would season with sesame, poppy, onion, salt, or whatever their personal bagel, bagel preferences might be. Um, and then uh, on a very similar note from Johnny, I am trying to make a ba- bagel-flavored cocktail and was wondering if you have some tips on to, uh, how to achieve something of a bagel flavor in the cocktail. I was thinking of using a sesame bagel, toasting slices of it, and infusing it into a malt-based liquor, and then adding in other flavors. Any ideas you have would be great. That's so freaking random. You think those guys know each other? No. Really? Yeah. Is this just like the, the, like the, the week of the bagel cocktail, or the, like the, it's like the bagel cocktail revolution? Well, uh, I will say that I have uh, never made a bagel cocktail before. Uh, we did do a uh, burrito cocktail once. Remember that? Yeah. It was disgusting. Yeah, gross, incredibly bad. We we took a uh, I took a Chipotle brand. Uh, this was as a joke, by the way. I wasn't intending to serve this. A Chipotle brand, uh, I believe it was a bean burrito. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, blended it in a high speed blender with uh, beer, Chang beer actually, uh, and then uh, centrifuged it to get the solids out, and then uh, chilled, got rid of the fat, and recarbonated it, and it tasted like a Subway Italian BMT sandwich. I believe was what we decided it tasted like. It was awful. I didn't have it. You were, you were you were busy off sulking somewhere, somewhere? Mm-hmm. sulking, yeah. It was for a pilot we did for uh, for uh, some a stoner thing. Anyway, I think I might have mentioned it in the year before. But bagels I haven't done. However, there is a lot of exper- uh, experience uh, in the bartending and in the food world with bread and cereal infused liquids. So uh, Sam Mason and uh, you know was famous for his cornbread ice cream, where he would soak cornbread in milk, I think, and then. Uh, and then use the milk for ice cream. Um, Christina Tozzi does uh, a lot of cereal-based uh, ice creams. She soaks cereal in the milk and then uses the milk to make ice cream, milk and cream. Um, uh, the closest in a cocktail world that I remember is uh, Eben Freeman uh, had a well-known uh, pumpernickel, uh, pumpernickel raisin scotch, where what he would do is he would slice the pumpernickel raisin bread very uh, thin, Lee, uh, then he would toast it and he would put it into scotch in a, basically a mason jar. Uh, and then after several days, he would decant it and I assume squeeze out the bread to recover the excess. Otherwise, he'd be a wasteful, wasteful bastard. Maybe he was a wasteful bastard. I don't know. But um, uh, so that is exactly what I would do. So you could, uh, as per Sam's thing, just do a plain bagel and then infuse in the other spices. Uh, but I think you'd be uh, just as good at choosing a bagel that you enjoyed, um, like an everything bagel, let's say, uh, and then uh, you know slice it. If you want a toasted flavor, I think it's going to transfer better with a toasted flavor. Toast it, although then it'll taste like a toasted bagel, not like a raw bagel. You could do it with a regular raw, you know, not raw, but you know what I mean, untoasted. Uh, slice it thinly and let it infuse. I would squeeze the stuff out. Expect some loss because of the absorption of the liquid in, into the um, – into the uh, bagel. I would assume you get less loss if you uh, dehyd- at least dehydrated it before you, uh, before you infused it. I mean, maybe if you don't want to toast it, if you don't want those brown flavors, I would at least dehydrate it to get some of that water out so that you get a better infusion of the stuff into it, uh, quicker, quicker transfer of the flavor to the alcohol. But that should definitely work. Now, the question is what kind of a – in other words, I, I wouldn't necessarily as um, – I think it was Johnny's name, right? Uh, uh, do a, a malt-based liquor, although you could. When we say malt, I assume you mean something like malt, like 
scotch. But I think something like scotch is going to be a little too strong. I'll go for a little lighter flavor uh, to go with your bagel because like, I think it's you know it's, it's not going to want a very heavy heavy flavor. I mean I mean look I would first I mean I know a lot of my listeners probably aren't vodka fans, but I would try it first in a high proof vodka just to see what the kind of flavor transfer characteristics are, and then move on because it's only going to be a couple of days. It's going to take it's not like it's going to take you a month to make this stuff, and then switch over to. Uh, you know, a flavor that you maybe like better with a bagel. Like, I don't think bagel and gin sounds good, do you? No. I mean, if you're going to do bagel and vodka, then you could go Bloody, bloody Mary-ish on it a little bit. You know what I mean? Some of the flavors that I like with a bagel, like tomato and things like that, or tomato water and a bagel uh, vodka might be nice. I'm trying to think of what else. I mean, the problem, you know, I think the problem with a, a scotch is just the oak is just going to be too intense, and I don't know that it's going to mix. It's going to blow the bagel out, don't you think, Stas? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and any regular malt stuff's going to be like a regular malt malt liquor, let's say like Colt Forty Five, isn't going to have enough of a uh, uh, an alcohol, I think, to really get a good infusion on it. So I think you're kind of stuck there um, using a, li- a lighter flavored uh, product. Maybe I mean I don't think you'd want to go into something like a grappa. I'm trying to think. What do you think? Any, any other ideas? Of liquors that might taste good with a bagel? I, mean, I think vodka might work. I mean, I hate to recommend it necessarily but look just test it in vodka first yes yes yeah uh make sure you seal the mason jar i don't think you're going to need to heat it uh the reason for mason jar is just it's got a wider neck on it and so you know you're not going to have to try and shove it in and then get it out um wow that's the first time that's ever happened two like very strange questions that have never come up before coming up. i bet you those guys know each other please write in and tell me whether you guys know each other and you're having some sort of bagel cocktail off and you just didn't want to tell the other one that you were writing a desk right i mean i mean seriously seriously and how's that possible? Okay, so starting with uh, – actually, you know what? You want to go to our first commercial break and come back? Let's go to our first commercial break. Call in all of your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Stay tuned for a live broadcast on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Issues calling all of your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Going with Johnny Hunter's second question. Uh, uh, is it safe to make dry cured meats with beef if you don't have a heat step to kill E. coli at some point? I was wondering if there was another way to kill E. coli and still make good dry cured meats. Thanks, Johnny Hunter. Now, uh, this is an excellent question. Um, <clears throat> first of all, the question is: Are you what kind of dry cured meat are you trying to make? Are you trying to make a uh, uh, like a sausage, like a dry cured sausage product, or a whole cut uh, dry cured meat, like a prasala or something like that? Now, uh, 
the, the problem is, is there's a number of bacteria that uh, can grow in uh, dry-cured meats. And the, the place to go for what the U.S. government considers to be kind of the uh, information on this is the National Center for Home Food Preservation, and they have a guide and literature uh, review series. And one is Smoking and Curing, Literature Review and Critical Preservation Points. And they talk about all the different uh, kind of nasty beasties that can grow in uh, your meat, like botulism, uh, listeria, uh, Staphylococcus and E. coli. They go through all of them, but these are going to be the major ones uh, that, that you have to deal with. Now, the issue with um, E. coli is uh, it's kind of the, the, the newer varieties of E. coli, like 0157H7, that are, that are very kind of um, – they can be vir- virulent and uh, difficult to uh, – you know, they, they can cause very bad infections if you get them. Um, so <clears throat> here's the issue. Dry curing unheated meat products doesn't necessarily kill uh, E. coli. Even if there is uh, quite a bit of salt present and you have a, a significant dehydration, you will kill some of them, but it's not considered an ultimate kill step. The bad news is is that uh, it doesn't take that many living bacteria to necessarily cause uh, an infection. There was an outbreak of uh, E. coli in uh, Washington State in 1994 that was linked to a dry fermented salami product that had been infected with E. coli. And they didn't think in the, at the end of the studies that it was caused uh, necessarily post-cure. In other words, it was probably caused uh, by meat that had been highly infected at the beginning of the cure process. And there's another study that was done that of meat that was very highly infected did show basically you know, a factor of uh, – I believe it was either 100 or 1,000 reduction in the, in the quantity of E. coli present, but still not a total eradication over the course of time of the uh, – of the, um, uh, of, of, the, of the dehydration and the fermentation. So the, the acidity uh, and the salt and the dehydration aren't necessarily enough, present enough to obliterate E. coli. Uh, and the same holds true for uh, meat jerky, That's especially meat jerky made out of ground meat, like ground meat strips that you then dehydrate, even though it's dehydrated quite a bit. Apparently, it's not enough of a kill step to necessarily assure that you've eradicated E. coli. Ha- have you killed a bunch of the E. coli? Most probably. Now, on, so those guys recommend uh, a heat – basically the, the, the U.S. government on meat, they recommend a 145 degree uh, for I think like four or ten minutes or something like that um, kill step for their uh, beef-containing sausages. So a lot of people to get around this have removed beef from a lot of their mixes like pepperoni and what. So it doesn't have to have that because strangely, it, unless it's got beef in it, they don't expect you to have E. coli in it. So they, they don't um, – they don't ask for or require that. That said, 145 degrees for uh, four minutes is a prepo- – or whatever it is, eight minutes, is preposterously high temperature to kill E. coli. Uh, I mean uh, ridiculously high. Uh, you should be able to kill it at much, much lower temperatures. But I think the reason they do this, I don't know whether they do that step after they dehydrate or before. If they do it after, then uh, it's a lot harder necessarily. It, it, there's not as much water, so it's probably not as easy to get the killing temperatures to the, uh, to the bacteria. Um, so that's the unfortunate, uh, the unfortunate of it. But if you're doing a whole muscle cut like a prasala, it's assumed that unless you've needled or jacarded the meat, that the inside is relatively sterile. And so basically you just need to make sure that the stuff on the outside is killed. And the extreme high salt that's on the um, outside of a whole muscle cut like a prasala bef- as it's curing, I think is probably going to wipe out anything that's present. In fact, I've never – I wasn't able to find any cases from a dry cured like a prasala of a poisoning. There have been ham issues where you've had that. 
that, but I think they're mostly off of brined, ready-to-cook hams that they've had outbreaks of things like staph, um, uh, E. coli, uh, thing, things of that nature. So those are things um, that I would uh, you know, wor- worry about. Um, you could also go to the FSIS, the Food Safety Inspection Service's Processing Procedures for Dried Meat on the web, and it has a lot of, uh, a lot of information on it. Um, I'm going to get back because my study of that and of adding nitrates, nitrates and nitrites obviously are added to control bacteria like botulism and to give kind of a cured color uh, to meats and a cured flavor. But while I was researching this for this question, I came up with an interesting kind of slaughter and anesthesia idea. But before I get into that, I'm going to read an update we had from um, – Andy in Chicago, who asked this about bluefish. Remember, he was going out and bluefishing. He actually texted this in uh, during last week's show, but I didn't have time to to get to it because I didn't see it because we were on the show. So he says, not sure if you'll get this in time for uh, today's show. We didn't. That's why we're doing it this week. But we wanted to let you know how the bluefish testing went. Now, for those of you that know, uh, that, that listened a couple of weeks ago, whatever, uh, Andy was going to go out uh, fishing for blues, among other things. And I said, please do uh, an Ikejime test on bluefish. Ikejime being, and spe- specifically spinal cord destruction, where you stick a needle down the spinal cord of the fish, uh, kill the spinal cord, and therefore stop the messages, uh, you know, the, the electrical signals from going to the spinal cord to so the muscles. This preserves the ATP in the muscles, which means it goes into rigor uh, a little bit later and a little bit softer than it would otherwise, which preserves firmness in flesh. And since bluefish gets nasty and mushy, um, I would assume that it would be a prime can- – and it's a strong swimmer. And usually it's the very strong swimmers that uh, uh, benefit a lot from <clears throat> spinal cord destruction. I thought it would be great, but I've never been able to run a test, and so Andy ran one for us. So I'm just going to read what he wrote. We caught three bluefish on our first night of fishing, uh, one of which you can see my friend holding in the attached pick. You can't see the attached pick, but I can. Uh, We did not destroy the brain, but cut through the spinal column and tail uh, on all three spinal cord destruction uh, and on all of them. Okay, sorry. He cut through the spinal cord and the tail on all three fish. The spinal cord uh, destroyed two of them and left all of them in an ice bath in the cooler to bleed out. Um... Okay, so unfortunately, he did not get to listen to the show until after everything happened, so he didn't remove the gills and guts immediately. We did fillet them, however, within about two to four hours of catching them. It's an interesting question of whether you should fillet a fish before or after it goes through rigor. The, uh, this is not what he's writing. I'm just telling you this as an aside. Uh, if you fillet a fish before it goes into rigor... Uh, it tends to be more contracted and firmer because it never relaxes as much as if it's left on the muscles uh, when, it's, when it's going into rigor. The idea being that the bones and the structure of the fish uh, hold the meat in place and don't allow it to uh, contract as much. So they end up being kind of larger fillets. That said, it might make a firmer fillet with less gaping in the flesh after it comes out of rigor if it's, if it's filleted before uh, it goes into rigor. It's an inter- interesting question. And I don't know whether it's gone into rigor. Uh, Nils and I years ago ran a couple of tests, but nothing um, – um, conclusive, so I never posted on it, but it's very interesting, and there is some research on it because people want to fillet fish as soon as they can after they uh, catch them for economic reasons. Anyway, uh, we did fillet them within about two hours of catching them. The non-spinal cord destruction fish we ate the first night, very light cornmeal breading, pan-fried, and a bit of canola oil, tasted a bit mushy but good overall. One of the spinal cord destruction fish we ate the second night after 24 hours of resting, also pan-fried and light cornmeal breading, definitely firmer, flakier, and tastier. The last one we ate the third night, cooked in a little butter, salt, and pepper without any coating. All three of us noticed a marked improvement over the previous night's fish, meaty, firm, flaky, and delicious. After 15-plus years of eating bluefish, that was probably the tastiest piece of bluefish I have ever eaten. Huh? Huh? Uh, 
uh, we need to run some more control tests. I'd like very much to run this test again, but it'll probably be another 10 months or more before I'm back on the Gulf Coast. Nevertheless, I think this test can be considered a qualified success, qualified only to the extent that it was only three fish and they were not eaten side by side. The darker flesh near the skin was, present, uh, was still present on all three fish, you know, that's like the bloodline near the thing, the chi. Uh, I don't mind chi. I don't mind eating that part, but it looks a little funky. It is also pretty easy to cut out of the fillet before cooking. Do you have any thoughts on how to treat that? Uh, thanks much, and look forward to hearing your thoughts, Andy from Chicago. Well, I mean, look, the fact that you like the bluefish the third day, I think, is freaking awesome. Especially if you're an experienced blue, uh, uh, bluefish eater, you know kind of uh, the problems and tribulations of bluefish after it sits around. I think, uh, you know, obviously. I don't, there's nothing you can do about the bloodline, by the way, except for cut it out. I mean, that's it. There's nothing you can do with it. I mean, uh, the Japanese, uh, with big tuna, they'll cut out the bloodline and they'll grill it separately over very high heat. I don't particularly like that preparation because it still has that kind of bloody metallic taste. They, they like it. You know, they, well, they I guess, soy and stuff and they grill it and everything. They like it, but, you know, whatever. It's also kind of small. I like the taste when it's mixed in with the other parts of the fish. Now, the fact that you like that, I think this is, is a really a huge opportunity for further study for any uh, fisher people who listen to this. I unfortunately don't have an opportunity to fish, and my stepfather refuses to do ekijime or spinal cord destruction on the fish he catches on Cape Cod, and he primarily gets a striper anyway. I don't know when the last time he got a blue was. But a blue fish, I think, is fantastic fish. It's a fish that, um, you know... You know, I've always liked, but it's recently becoming more popular. It's our fish. It's there in abundance. If we can make this fish taste significantly better based on its post-slaughter treatment by doing spinal cord destruction, this is a, a huge opportunity for us to improve the quality of a fish that I already think is delicious. But I favor fatty fish anyway. Do you like a fatty fish, Nastasha? She does. She does. She's not talking to the mic, so you might not be able to hear her, but she says that she does. For those of you that you know can't hear the whispered tones of Nastasha leaning into the background and playing with her purse. Anyway, <laughs> what? Doing something very important. Yeah, what? Can't say. It. She can't say. Uh-huh. Yeah, all right. Great. Can't say. Super. All right. So uh, Ryan Santos writes in. Hey, Dave, what's up with snails? That's a good question. It's kind of, I like an open-ended question like that. What's up with snails? I've had them both great and terrible. What's the best way to cook them? Is there a low temp- uh, cooking solution? At what temperatures are snails and then, quote-unquote, cooked? And is this all pointless as I only have access to canned snails? Thanks. Well, yes. If you only have access to canned snails, then all of this is pointless because those snails have been cooked at a very high temperature already. And, um, you know, they're basically – those snails are uh, – have been sterilized in water and salt uh, and, you know, probably a court bouillon mixture in, in a can at at least 120C for, I don't know, like 30, 40 minutes. So they're, they're, they're cooked. I mean they are cooked. Um, but – uh, even if you don't have access to live snails, I know in Europe they're available because I was looking at my at my the, might be the worst translated book I own called uh, Intensive Snail Farming. It's from Italy. From I went to a farm called uh, La Chocula, which is a, a, a slang word for snail in the north of Italy. Uh, the other one's Lumaca, right? Mm-hmm. Lumaca is the real word, but La Chocula is the name of the farm, and it's. Uh, uh, you know, it means snail in, in like uh, Etruscan or some crap. Anyway, so the uh, – by the way, my son says I say crap too much. Daddy, you say crap too much. It is true. It's true? I say crap too much? Anyway, it's better than the rest of the stuff yeah. I say. Anyway, so uh, <clears throat> I have this book and apparently in Europe – I've never seen it in the U.S. I'm sure it's available. You can get fresh-packed frozen snails in like frozen block form the way that you would get shrimp. And I don't think those ones have been high-temp processed, so you could, um, you could cook with those. Occasionally in fish markets in New York, you will get um, crated live snails. And the way that they're prepared, 
is uh, they take snails and that they've been eating. And traditionally, if you catch snails, right, that you haven't been feeding yourself, uh, you don't know what they've been eating. They could have been eating plants that are poisonous to you, uh, but not poisonous to them. So the typical thing is you starve them out for three days. You put them in a cage with mesh so that they don't get like done in their, you know, all mired in their own muck. Uh, and you just let them stay in that cage for seven days, uh, no water, nothing. And they'll, they'll basically, uh, they'll, Cover themselves. They'll go in to basically a hibernating mode. They'll they'll cover their whatever that thing is called. The what is that called? The it's not a operculum, is it? Whatever whatever the flap is that covers the uh, the snail. They'll they'll cover that up. It'll seal themselves and they'll go into hibernation. And then they'll last for a long time alive. So that's what they do. They prepare the snails like that and they ship them in a box. At which point they're ready to go. You wash them off. Uh, you know, with whatever vinegar, whatever. If they have any stink, them. Be careful with them because the shells are often quite fragile. Uh, then you uh, you boil them for like three minutes in salted water, or whatever. This is basically just to kill them. After you kill them, you pick off the trap door. Uh, take the snails out, then you prepare them using any one of the normal techniques. And the normal technique is to cut off the black foot, although I've heard that that's not necessary, uh, you know, at the back, whatever that, like, the guts are in the very back of the snail. Although, like I say, here that's not necessary. And then they're simmered in a court bouillon, which is like a flavored bouillon, uh, for a long time until they're tenderized, and then repacked in the shells with your butter, with herbs, whatever. Although a lot of Italian preps, actually, instead of using parsley and all that, use mint. That'd be kind of interesting, right? Minted Mm -hmm. snails? Anyway, in the north, and they use peppermint apparently in these recipes from uh, Etruscan. Anyway, Etruscan recipes. Anywho, um, now, uh, if you can obtain uh, live snails, right, I think that's the way to go. I've done it, but I've only done it maybe four or five times, and I haven't done it in probably 10 years because I used to have a fish market that had live snails. Uh, on a seasonal basis, and I would just buy them from them and make them, and they were delicious. We tried to cook some snails that hadn't been purged out properly um, when uh, when I was in Italy a couple of years ago, and it wasn't a hundred percent success. So, I mean, if you can get ones that have been cleaned out, and uh, we also tried to feed them, which didn't work because you're supposed to fatten snails, and the Romans used to fatten them on milk, and they. But you need to know what you're doing. I've had horrible luck about. Fifteen years ago, I tried to fatten snails on rosemary uh, because apparently paella, you know, they fed them herbs, the snails. They would feed them herbs, and then they would taste like the herbs. But I think that's horse hockey. And I talked to Steingarten. He thinks it's BS too because these snails, not only did they not eat the rosemary, they died in my, in my house, in, the, in my apartment on 38th Street, and they stank up the entire apartment. I tried to take the few live snails that were left and cook them, and my wife was like, are you nuts? Are you freaking nuts? Who the hell is going to eat those snails after they've been smelling up our bathroom for the last you know, week? Anyway, so I wouldn't recommend doing that. Uh, but they are fairly easy to cook. Now, as for sous vide or low temperature, I couldn't find any recipes on low temperature cooking of snails. That said, the issue with snails when you cook them is uh, after you do your kill step with them, you take them out and you're supposed to uh, boil them either a couple times or rinse them in something acidic to get rid of the mucus. Snails produce a lot of mucus, and you want to rinse the mucus off before you, uh, before you uh, work with them. Uh, so if you're going to do low temp, I would try to do the kill step initially, pull them out, rinse them off uh, you know, with, uh, in water, salt, and vinegar, like get the prep, and then do a low temp prep. But I don't know what temperature you'd use. Like would you do similar to an octopus? And so Keller for that does like five hours at 77C. I do it usually like just a regular simmering water for like three hours in a bag. Uh, or Keller has his cuttlefish recipe at 64 degrees Celsius for 10 hours, which he says is good, but I have no experience with. The one I'd really like to try is uh, whatever – Nathan Mirvold does for uh, gooey duck, which is if you're looking it up and you don't know what it is, it's spelled G O 
Cheeto Duck, and it's the Porn Stars Clam. It looks like – well, it's it, – yeah, just look it up, and you'll see what it looks like. It's crazy. It's like, you know uh, – and he made, I think, the best-tasting uh, gooey duck that I've ever had at his uh, modernist uh, dinner that he did uh, you know, at his lab. And he did it at a very low temp and not that long, basically just warmed through in a CVAP oven. But I don't have a copy of Modernist Cuisine, so I couldn't look it up. Anyone that has it out there, uh, I'm going to write in or call in right now at 718 uh, and tell us what uh, their cooking technique is because I'd like to give that. I think that would uh, be useful. Anyway, let's go to our second commercial break, and we'll come back with the last questions. Let in some air. Put a little air freshener under the drums. Open up the window. Let out some. I love some live James Brown. Thank you, Jack. Is that yours, Jack? That's not mine. Who no, whose call was that? <laughs> oh, my call, yes. Yeah, nice. Uh, yes. Any, any live James Brown is good. You know, we used to play... Was it was it always James Brown for the center, right? For for our middle track, it was always James Brown, and someone yeah, started for, complaining. Exactly. What the who the hell complains about James Brown? It, look, 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 if you don't like James Brown, there is something wrong with your funk motor. I, I think it's because they liked when Jack and I put on Phil Collins that one time. That's right. Yeah, that that's that was it. it. Mm-hmm. Phil was it Susudio? It was a little bit of Genesis and a little bit of Phil. I can't remember. Which Phil Phil style Genesis? Like uh, that's all? Like really bad Genesis? And I'm not saying that's bad for all you Genesis lovers. By the way, you know who's a big Genesis lover? Famous violinist. (laughs) Stop. Let's not talk about that. No? (laughs) No. Uh, Let me just say there's a guy who owns a three and a half million dollar violin whose only rock music that he likes is Genesis. Only music other than classical. Other than classical he likes is Genesis. And I won't say that his last name is Bell because I, I can't say that. But when confronted by, you know, I don't know who, let's say someone whose name is Nastasha, really, she, she literally said, really? Phil Collins? That's all? Which is, you know, one of their later and, you know, what are weak songs. He's like, oh, no, 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 early Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> okay, getting in trouble. All right. So the other question from Sankansen uh, Benanov, uh, 
but not enough. Sorry, Sam, that I can't get your name uh, right. Someone call in. If you pronounce it to me three times in a row, I should be able to get it. And by the way, he's at the University of Wisconsin, Madison, Madtown, which everyone who's from there loves it more than they love anything. You know, I've never, I've never been. The closest I've been is to Oshkosh. Uh, the International Agriculture and Natural Resources Community and Environmental Sociology. That's the hugest name for a department I've ever heard in my entire life. Anyway. Uh, he also asked about uh, the uh, bagel cocktail, uh, and his other question, though, was, what is the secret to a crispy pickle? We do lots of pickling with a variety of vegetables. However, once the product is canned, they become mushy, albeit delicious. Uh, the most I have found is to salt, use ice baths, and even some recipes that claim grape or oak leaves will help keep the product crisp. Any thoughts? All right. Okay. Uh so the grape leaf thing is really about um, cucumbers. So in cucumbers, there is uh, an, there's there are enzymes in cucumbers, uh, and there's a huge long list of them that I got off of a uh, a website. Um, a lot of like, well, they're basically um, they, they're pectinase enzymes, like pec- pectin um, esterase, and uh, like lots of really random ones. That I'm not going to try to pronounce. Okay, exopolygalactorunase. Uh, endopolygalactoronase, which, you know, endoxylinase, basically a bunch of aces that, uh, enzymes that break down, um, pectin and even cellulase that break down like uh, hemicellulose and, and cellulose that, that destroy the structure over time unless the enzymes are destroyed. Uh, so you can either destroy them or you can inhibit them or you can remove them. So in a cucumber, Right, the grape leaves that are added apparently have something in them that can uh, inhibit the activity of those enzymes, and I don't know what that something is. I didn't have time to, to figure it out, but I've seen it done uh, that listed not just in kind of like home nut job sites, but also in some university agricultural extension sites. So I'm assuming that there is some validity to that, although you know I don't know specifically what the ingredient is. The other thing is is that um, those enzymes are concentrated in the blossom end of the cucumber, which is why they say to cut off the 16th inch, uh, a 16th inch or so slice at the blossom end of the cucumber. The blossom end is not the stem end. The blossom, so if you like think about a zucchini flower, when you see it, you get those baby zucchinis with the flower coming off of them. Right, so the blossom end is actually the uh, uh, the other end, the end that sticks out of the plant. And uh, from the research that I was able to do, that is where it's mostly concentrated. So taking a small slice off of that section will get rid of uh, a lot of where those enzymes are. Also, if there's any flower material left where that flakes off at that end, that can cause because the flowers maintain that enzymatic activity basically even if they are dried. So, uh, and there was a bunch of studies done in the '50s where they put flowers even into and a pickles that had already been done, and it softened those pickles. So you really want to get rid of those enzymes, okay? So that's one way is to cut that off. That's going to lower the enzyme. Use uh, use pickles that are made for pickling because they have a lower concentration of those enzymes to begin with, are more uniform, usually thinner, and are usually kind of denser and don't have any air voids, which are also going to lead to better pickles. So choosing your right variety, uh, pickling them right after you pick them so that they don't start softening up So because they basically start getting worse the minute they're taken uh, off the plant. So you want to pickle them soon after they've been harvested. Choose the correct variety of pickle, uh, cucumber rather. Uh, this is cu- cucumbers only, by the way. And then trim off that um, that stem end. Oh, sorry, <sighs> trim off the blossom end. Uh, the other thing you can do 
if you notice, most recipes, they have you pouring hot liquid over uh, the pickles. This is for quick pickling, that is, uh, you know, with vinegar, not like lactic acid pickles. So pour a hot mixture over it and then heat it uh, to like 180 uh, or just below for a, a certain period of time. The reason they start with hot is because they don't want those ends. They want to kill those enzymes right away before they can do any softening. So you hit them with that hot water and you keep them. Uh, high enough to kill the enzyme, but below 185, where the pectins are going to start breaking down due to heat, and you wipe out the enzymes, and this is uh, going to create a firmer pickle. If you go over 180, really, you're shafted because you're going to soften the pickle, uh, the cucumber. So those high temperatures can, uh, it, like high but not too high temperatures, inactivate the enzymes, and cutting off that blossom and reduces the load of enzymes in there anyway. Uh, aside from that, high salt levels are going to make it so that it stays crisper. It's going to get more wilted due to osmosis. But it's going to stop the uh, those enzymes from from working. So those all work in a traditional lactic acid cucumber, uh, you know, like where it's like sour, sauerkraut style, you know, lactic acid bacteria. The high salt level, I think, uh, stops the enzymes from working, and so leads to having a crisp pickle. Uh, the the other thing you can add uh, now, go to regular vegetables. I wasn't able to find much on. Um, kind of pectin breakdown enzymes in other things like cauliflower and whatnot, which make delicious pickles, but. Uh, that said, I'm assuming high salt will work, but if you really need want to keep it crisp and you're having problems, uh, try – certain things are just going to get all wilty because of the salt, and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, but uh, try um, lime, pickling lime. They, no one uses alum anymore. I don't know why because they don't want to put aluminum in because people are freaked out about aluminum. But uh, you can use pickling lime, and the calcium in that strengthens the pectin in the cell walls and makes it such that they uh, stay firm basically uh, no matter what. You know, even if you cook them. So what they'll do is they'll make a lime solution with salt. And lime is you can get pickling lime, you can get a uh, cow from a Mexican store, you can get Thai lime paste, you can get anything. Make a, a solution of lime; it'll settle out salt, and then put the the cucumber or whatever vegetable in. Let it soak. I don't know, a couple hours overnight. I, there's a couple of recipes online, but I can't remember them off the top of my head. Then you have to uh, get – once it does its calcium thing, you have to soak it in a couple of uh, regular clean water baths to get the excess calcium out. I once packed in heavy calcium water cucumbers, and over the course of a couple of days, they were the most disgusting things in the world. They had the most bizarre texture. So you don't want to over-lime them, right? But then they'll stay crunchy for a long, long time. That will work with other – with anything basically. Your last resort – and you can't get this. I don't even know why I'm telling you this. You can buy pectin methylesterase, which is the, an enzyme that actually strengthens uh, the cell walls of uh, plants uh, enzymatically, and you can buy that. The commercial brand, it's from Novozymes, it's called Novoshape, and I can take a blueberry a raspberry, soak it in Novo Shape for a couple of hours, uh, Novo Shape in water, and then boil it, and it won't even break because it stays firm enough. So it's really it's cool stuff. So those are your, basically your your range of op, of things: heat treat to kill any enzymes that are present, but not uh, at a high enough temperature to soften. On a cucumber, cut off the blossom end, not the stem end. Uh, although I might as well cut them both off. What does it matter? Uh, and then and discard. Um, use fresh uh, ingredients that haven't had a time to break down. And if you need to, use pickling lime. Uh, and alum really isn't, uh, even though it does the same thing as calcium, isn't necessarily recommended anymore. Uh, what is that? Does that sound like good advice or no? Yes. Yes. Oh, and higher salt levels. If you do a low-salt pickle, it's going to get softer, I think, uh, no matter what. Even though the salt, like I say, osmotically is going to make it uh, shrivel up a little bit. Apparently, it stops any sort of enzymatic breakdown and also stops bacteria from growing, which can otherwise make things soft. Yes? 
Yes? Okay. Now, the last thing, as I was researching um, uh, nitrites for today's uh, thingamajig when I was doing cured meats, uh, I came across an, inter- interesting, um, an interesting thing. You familiar with the blue people of Kentucky? No. No? So there used to be a, a famously a family, I believe their name was the Fugates of Kentucky, the Blue Fugates of Kentucky. And they had a, uh, a congenital, or they have still, a congenital uh, disease uh, called, uh, what's it called? Uh, I'll, I'll look it up. But basically the idea is, is that their hemoglobin isn't oxygenated enough because they don't have uh, the proper enzymes to um, take uh, deoxygenated hemoglobin and reoxygenate it at the same rate uh, that we do. Uh, and so here we go. It's called uh, methemoglobinemia. Uh, <clears throat> and so they were blue because their, their, their blood didn't have as much oxygen and they were very pale people and they lived in Kentucky. So they had this whole thing and they were known as the blue fugates of Kentucky uh, or the blue people of Kentucky. They since figured out how to cure that so they're not, they're not blue anymore. But where does, it, where, does that, where does that bring me? Because it turns out that uh, there's – in Australia, they're researching a technique to induce uh, methemoglobinemia in wild pigs by feeding them sodium nitrite, which is the same thing that we cure meats with. And pigs have a very low level of uh, the enzyme that, uh, that basically conver- – it's called um, methemoglobin reductase that uh, converts methemoglobin back to oxygen-carrying hemoglobin. So they have a low, much lower level of this enzyme than we do. So uh, basically they feed them uh, sodium nitrite pills in hog baits, and they're called – the baits, check this out, are called hog-on, hog-on. Hogon baits. There are 20 grams of microencapsulated sodium nitrates uh, spread throughout, uh, you know, uh, basically baits that they put in the forest. And what's uh, awesome about this hog bait is that they eat it, and their blood no longer carries uh, oxygen, right? Because they they have a, too much uh, met hemoglobin in, but they don't feel distressed. They go into basically they get woozy and they fall asleep, they pass out, and then they die. So. Uh, and like I've said many times is that – I don't know whether I've said it here, but many times I can't remember whether I said it here or not. Your body doesn't sense in pigs' bodies. They don't sense lack of oxygen. They sense excess carbon dioxide. So the pig is not going to feel stressed. They don't freak out uh, when they're being killed with uh, sodium nitrite. Um, so I was thinking because we've been thinking a lot about anesthetics for uh, fish. I've done a lot of work with anesthetics for fish, anesthetics for crustaceans. Um, and with proper slaughtering uh, practices. But this is basically only being used for um, killing wild hogs in a humane manner. You, you know what they've been feeding them before? Rat poison. How nasty is that? Feeding them rat poison, which basically causes you to bleed out internally, which can't be pleasant. Um, and um, I'm wondering whether or not like this can be used for a uh, for humane slaughter practice, basically anesthesia for regular pigs that are going to market – um, they pass out and die within one hour without any noticeable. There's a spike in certain biological mar- markers like cortisol, which are normally con- uh, added with stress, but uh, the other biological markers weren't changed, and it could just be due to the fact that uh, the increased um, uh, the, the the shift of oxygen in the blood. Anyway, so I'm going to leave you guys this week with that idea of is there a possibility for more humane slaughtering of pigs by basically putting them to sleep with what amounts to a food grade. Uh, anesthetic, sodium nitrite, and can this be feasible? I'd like any feedback from our readers, uh, listeners rather, and this has been Cooking Issues. Fish, 
Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. Today we'd like to send a special thank you to the following restaurants for supporting No Goat Left Behind, Sambar and Mapesh. Show your support at these restaurants by ordering one of the menu items featuring goat. Goat is the most eaten protein in the entire world, yet in the U.S. we import most of our goat. Our dairy farms are forced to kill some male goats at birth because there's no market for them. Help make a change. Support No Goat Left Behind. As a part of National Food Day, St. John's Bread and Life, Brooklyn's innovative and life-saving food service program based in Bedford-Stuyvesant, is inviting Brooklyn chefs and purveyors to learn about how the organization is marrying the procurement of old-fashioned, locally grown organic produce with the latest technology to deliver healthy, cost-effective meals to those in need. St. John's Bread and Life, located at 795 Lexington Avenue, will hold an open house on Monday, October 24th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Visit www.foodday.org to sign up for the event.